Because art's not funny. I mean, the art world's not funny. It's not a funny place. It's funny things that happen, but it's, it's not really like a funny place. And I think anybody with like a modicum of sense of humor wouldn't really, really waste their time on creating videos for the art world. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. The artist Jason Musson has a unique status in the art ecosystem. He has the persona and perspective of an outsider, but his work is also something of a cult reference for art insiders. Originally from the Bronx, Musson got his creative start in Philadelphia in the 2000s, creating cerebral satirical street art, penning a column for Philadelphia Weekly called Black Like Me, and performing the cult hip-hop group Plastic Little, with songs like I'm Not a Thug, Rap O'Clock, and Miller Time. But Musson rocketed unexpectedly onto the radar in 2011 with Art Thoughts, a DIY YouTube series that immediately became a treasured touchstone for anyone in art school and in art media. It starred Musson in the persona of Hennessy Youngman, a gold-chain-bedecked host who fused the styles of art theory lecture and deaf comedy jam through monologues about everything from concepts of beauty to Damien Hirst's tendency to make goofy faces in party photos. It felt fresh enough to surprise, but also knowing enough to be a direct hit. Since then, Musson has worked in a variety of styles over the last decade, from painting to sculpture to children's books to mixtapes. But he's back in the spotlight this month with a very different video series at Philadelphia's Fabric Workshop and Museum that puts a unique spin on art education. Titled His History of Art, the new show has a characteristically offbeat premise. It takes the form of a combination of sitcom and PBS edutainment, with Musson starring as Jay, a genial but sophisticated host who explains the value of art history to Ollie, a rabbit played by a puppet. And there are lots of other very surreal detours along the way. Ben Davis, Artnet News' national art critic and a Jason Musson fan, recently had the chance to talk to the artist about his unusual career and the idea behind his new riff on art history. Here is their conversation. Jason Musson, thanks for coming on The Art Angle. Thank you for having me. So you have this ambitious new show at the Fabric Workshop and Museum in Philadelphia. And because that show is themed around art history and art education, I thought I'd begin by asking you, what kind of art were you interested in or were you around when you were growing up? My family is Jamaican, and I grew up with a lot of um, like West Indian folk paintings, I guess. Uh, a lot of like paintings of people walking the countryside, coming back from market. So that's kind of the visual language I grew up with. And then my dad, or it's probably my dad, had a uh, Miro poster for some reason. I don't know. It didn't fit in with everything else. Maybe it was kind of like uh, something to add to his uh, suburban home that made him seem like a man of the world. I don't know. I've read you say that you were really interested in comic books coming Yeah, up. absolutely. I think that was actually like my impetus to even go to art school. I used to write and draw comic books throughout my teens. And probably because my older brother had tons of comic books around and it like was just there. And I just loved the storytelling and the world building. And so in my teenage mind, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a graphic designer is my job. And I'll write comic books on the side. I don't know what kind of like dream that was. They're both pretty unstable professions, but that, you know, fell to the wayside as I was actually like in school. And, you know, I, I decided to pursue photography. Yeah. You have a BFA in photography and an MFA yeah, in painting. Yeah. Yeah. What drew you to art school? I mean, I had no real aptitude for anything else. You know, um, I like, you know, as a teenager, I liked 
I had like no social life, you know, like I would spend my Fridays and Saturdays and weekends outside of school, like drawing and writing comic books. And, you know, I really didn't know of any other options for myself. And so like art school seemed like the appropriate avenue for someone like me of a little real world talent, you know? So that was the initial draw. It was to, you know, be a comic book artist or writer. Yeah, I think that kind of shines through in your work. There's a kind of storytelling, narrative, pop culture, savvy strength to your work. Yeah, I can't escape it for some reason. I want to give the audience a little bit of a sense of how your work has developed. I know you've said that your first really successful work was this poster series you did called Too Black for BET. And it's something like a text art series. It has this unnerving, unplaceable narrative voice, a little bit like Jenny Holzer, yeah. only bleaker. Uh, <laughs> bleaker maybe and funnier and with more Star Wars references. So tell us about that work. Where did it come from and how did Too Black for BET circulate? Too Black for BET began as a series of street stickers that me and my best friend Kurt Hunt started writing in 2000 or 2001 and they were white impact font on a black background. And we created this fictitious uh, gang called the Knives. And I was the leader of the Knives, a uh, pack of rats. And Kurt was nobody's child. I don't know where the writing necessarily came from. At the time, I was like a computer lab monitor at school. And I was in charge of a lab that like had all these new fancy computers that no one was allowed to use yet they still needed a monitor for it and so i would sit in this like lab and just like kind of like write and write to myself and at the time i also worked at pearl arts and crafts as a sales associate at an art store on south street here in philly and so i would just shoplift a bunch of like adhesive inkjet paper and just like use the printer in the lab and just print out all these like crazy uh missives and stick them up around school, around downtown Philly. Was that just a way to blow off steam, or were you thinking about that as an art practice? No, nah, it was more of like a graffiti thing. I was also like playing around with graffiti, too, at the time. Didn't it really like connect back into art? You know, I, no one knew that I was writing the, no faculty at least, knew I was like writing these stickers. The teacher Gabriel Martinez saw the stickers, and which evolved into these like broadside posters. And then Gabriel introduced me to the work of Glenn Ligon and how the work I was doing had a... Um, precedent within uh, fine art. But at the time, I was it was more of just a total like graph thing, street thing. I think it did like two exhibitions of those. You have been involved in many creative endeavors. You were in a hip hop group, Plastic Little. Yeah. You had a column for the Philadelphia Weekly. But I think that a lot of people first became aware of you, including myself, as the first YouTube famous artist with this series, Art Thoughts, with a Z where you created this alter ego, Hennessy Youngman, who broke down topics in art theory and art history in this very funny way. That's a combination of art school and deaf comedy jam. I think the critic Brian Boucher described it as Ali G with an MFA. Yeah, Brian has a way with words. But I read that this character came out of some of the frustrations you had with the MFA program you were in and with art school. So where did this character, Hennessy Youngman, come from? Uh, all right. So basically, you know, I left undergrad in like 2002 
And there was about a decade of just being a human being in Philadelphia. So I made music, I toured, I did make art, but the social circle in which I made art was a far cry from that of, say, the conversation that was occurring in a contemporary art. I had, you know, this decade of just very creative and fulfilling life experiences, but it just didn't align or fall into the arena or playground that most people going into graduate school like really have an experience for. And so I had these fairly alien experiences coming into graduate school that my 10 years outside of like schooling wasn't really filled with like trips up to NY or trips to museums. It was making music, going to bars and clubs and doing shows and things like that. And so when I went into grad school, it was definitely a massive culture shock. It required definitely a, a bit of adjustment just to go into this like very, very like refined and considered world. I think in my first semester, I had the idea for Hennessy. You know, I like listening to the uh, quote unquote discourse that would occur around work. That's what they call just talking about art in art school. Yes, it's a discourse. I mean, they call it that on Twitter, too. But listening to the discourse and sort of viewing this academic performances were kind of my initial introduction into the world of contemporary art via graduate school. And seeing these like kind of social performances or around art led me to the idea of creating a character that discussed the same material, but with totally opposing mannerisms. And so that's kind of how Hennessy started, but I didn't really have a name for it. It was just kind of like this art comedian project. Also at the time, I didn't do performance work. I actually joked that like, you know, everyone that goes into graduate school, like no matter what they do coming in, always leaves like as a video artist or performance artist. And that wasn't going to be me, not at all. But of course, you know, put me alone in a room with a webcam and that was it. My first semester there, my critique was fairly brutal and that gave me the drive to kind of really flesh out and develop the character and actually start filming some of the uh, early art thoughts. So you were filming these while you were in school. Yes, That's kind of yes, an amazing yes. thing just to be gaining an audience as a commentator on art school while you're in art school. Yeah, I don't know if that was <laughs> I don't know if that was good for my experience as an art student because once you cut your faculty out of the conversation around your work, you're no longer really developing it with them in mind. But I didn't really care because I didn't really like them. So Did you get a reaction from your professors? So basically, you know, once I started working on the Hennessy stuff, I didn't share it with my faculty at all. I just was filming it in secret and sharing it with my fellow students, like some of them. And so when I would have the weekly studio visits, I was showing my faculty like all this fake work. You know, they thought I was like really struggling with the program, but I didn't really care about their opinion. So I didn't want to share it with them. And so then I shared it at the end of my first year, my second review, and that's when they saw it for the first time. The purpose initially of Art Thoughts wasn't really to, even though I was using all the aesthetics from YouTube and the motifs of like a YouTuber, my thoughts initially were that they were to be shown in galleries or, you know, exhibition spaces. It wasn't really meant to go online. And I, I guess after that critique, I decided just to put it up on YouTube, essentially just to like archive it, you know? And that's when they gained an audience, which was a complete surprise to me because at the time, like 2010, a lot of video archives of performance work didn't really have large viewership. And so I wasn't really expecting them to gain an audience. It was just more of like, let me just share this, but mostly just to like keep something outside of my hard drive, just in case the shit crashes. 
Why do you think it had that impact? I mean, I guess you could say that in terms of viral phenomena, the audience of Art Thoughts is relatively modest. But on the other hand, in terms of memes, Hennessy Youngman has stuck around as a reference for me and a lot of other people for a lot longer than the average viral craze. I mean, I know people who, ironically, I guess, teach Art Thoughts in art school. It did have this impact as this irreverent, funny take on art. Because art's not funny. The art world's not funny. It's not a funny place. It's funny things that happen, but it's, it's not really like a funny place. And I think anybody with like a modicum of sense of humor wouldn't really, really waste their time on creating videos for the art world. That's at least my opinion. There have been tons of artists that have worked with humor over the decades, but essentially they're the odd folks out. Maybe just describe the character really quick, just for people who aren't familiar or haven't met Hennessy Youngman. Henrock Allah is inspired by, you know, black comedians, you know, like I grew up watching Eddie Murphy Raw. I don't know why I shouldn't have um, Damon Wayans Last Stand, Deaf Comedy Jam. And so Hennessy was essentially like based on uh, the kind of motif of the black comedian exploring the binaries between white and black American culture. And so that's how he started. And my friend, Louis Cancel, he actually coined the name Hennessy Youngman because uh, we were working together at this bar and I was discussing the character with him, this art comedian, and he suggested naming him Hennessy. And I was like, that shit is dope. That's great. That's perfect. Hennessy rocks the red Spider-Man hat. I think he had a red Spider-Man shirt because, you know, all great black comedians have to do a stand-up special wearing all red. So, Is there one of those videos that you think is the most successful? Well, there's like successful in terms of viewership numbers and then successful like what I like personally. I haven't looked at the numbers in a while. I think the Damien Hurst one might be the most watched because, you know, Damien Hurst is an easy target to pounce upon. I like the earlier stuff better because for me as an artist, I like a project when I don't know what I'm doing. I like the unknown horizons in a project where you're really just like exploring. And I liked exploring the character of Hennessy when I didn't really like know what I was doing or what he would be. And that's the most fun. Once there's like a fan base, that shit becomes like a burden. And like people, you know, start looking up to the project. And that's when I always decide that I'm going to like try to tank a project and like push people away with each successive video. That's a good question. Is that why you ended the series? Uh, let's see, I ended it in 2012 because I started focusing more on my studio practice, not to sound like a graduate student, but I, I was just spending more time in the studio and less time thinking of videos and more time making with my hand is like, I'm not in the world of words and dialogue and scripting, you know, because, you know, all those videos are like heavily scripted. They're not like these off the cuff riffs. I spend more time writing them than I do recording them. And so making visual art sometimes is like, for me at least, can be like antithetical to being the writer. Now we're talking about the early 2010s, which is really the period of the birth of viral media culture. And there's this other big footnote in the Jason Musson story that happens around then in 2013. Another weirder experience of going viral, even though it's a little bit of a detour, can you talk about your role in the Harlem Shake. <laughs> All right, so Plastic Little, we recorded a song in like 2000. It's actually like our first song. It's called Miller Time. And Miller Time, me and Kurt recorded it. Essentially, it's about, you know, 
our willingness to sell out, you know, like the whole song is about all the different brands we would endorse, you know, and uh, we were like super broke, like eating like, you know, we'd order like white rice and general so sauce on the side, you know, we were young and broke and just like, man, we would love to sell out. There's a few versions of Miller Time and the final version of Miller Time was sampled by Bauer. What essentially happened was at one of our shows in like 2001 or two, I had this graffiti beef with this dude named uh, Sick. Shout out Sick. Someone had told me he was going over my tags. And so I started going over his tags. And so Sick shows up to one of our shows. I think we were performing at some like gallery in the old city Philly. And, you know, apparently he wanted to fight me, you know. So I'm like, all right, I'll go outside, see where he is. I guess we're going to fight. Our testosterone is going to envelop each other. And so I go outside and all of a sudden I get hit with a 40 bottle over my head. And then we started fighting. But the thing is, like, I'm much, much taller than this person. This is also my first fight. But, you know, I was astounded during the fight at how poorly this person could fight. It was like an ent from Lord of the Rings beating up a hobbit, you know? It was just, like, kind of like this weird thing where I was like, this is, like, way, way too easy. The fight sort of ends. I kind of stop beating him up. And I just kind of, like, look at him. Then I just do the Harlem shake. And he, like, gets on a skateboard and with one sneaker on and skates off into the night. And so the lyric that was sampled for the song Harlem Shake, it comes from a line, I'll just punch you in the face, then do the Harlem Shake. And that line was sampled by Bauer. That became the hook to the multi-platinum plague known as the Harlem Shake. Is that just a totally random coincidence that Art Thoughts and Harlem Shake were happening at about the same time? Or was it just that it was the early viral era in Philly and art and music were circulating in new ways and Jason Musson happened to be at the center of it? I, I, don't, I don't really know. That shit was a total surprise to me. Harlem Shake was like 2013 or 14. The only connection is that Bauer was in Philly at the time. I didn't know him. A lot of weirdos like Plastic Little. You know, I don't think he thought that song would actually become what it was. Totally serendipitous. When I first heard it, I didn't even know it was me. My friend Kurt in Plastic Little called me up. He's like, you know, that's us, you know, you know. And so I was like, oh, that's cool. Um, but there was no plan, you know. It's not a lot of planning in this life of mine. The point being that you are the rare visual artist who also happens to be a multi-platinum selling recording artist. Yeah, man, I got the platinum plaque too. Sometimes I like to pull it out when I'm depressed and look at it. You know, that's my, like, I did something with this life. In the meantime, you were focusing on your gallery practice, as you said. You signed with a big New York gallery, Salon 94, and you've done all kinds of art. You've done a series of abstract paintings based on the pattern of Kuji sweaters. You've done artworks that are modeled after jokes about modern art from the comic strip Nancy. And it all has the quality for me, of finding unexpected angles into the art conversation or being somewhere between a joke and serious. So how do you approach coming up with an idea for a new series of art? I don't know. I think the Kuji works initially began, you know, they came out of the Hennessy project where, you know, the large part of the joy of that project was coming up with outfits for each video. And uh, I think one night I was just searching Kuji sweaters online for like a Hennessy video and I was like I was bartending at the time and so probably came home drunk and online shopping and I saw some sweaters and I was just like 
you know, when you're drunk and just awestruck by something and it's like, wow, it looks like a Pollock. And I had made like a Tumblr post kind of joking about how the Coogee sweaters look like Pollocks. Then I decided like, you know, maybe I'll try making an actual painting out of one. And I slowly taught myself how to sew. That's where that idea developed. You know, I came across the gags from the Nancy strip in like the late 90s, actually. It's actually in a project idea older than the Hennessy Youngman. When I was working at Pearl Arts and Crafts, I came across a Nancy small graphic novel put together by a Kitchen Sink Press called Artists and Con Artists. And it was just a collection of all of the Nancy strips or some of them that revolved around either modern art, jazz, modern architecture. Bushmiller was someone who just hated modernity. I always loved those comic strips. And I've had this graphic novel since 1996 or seven. I've always wanted to do something with it. And I didn't really have the vocabulary, you know, in my youth to really figure out a method for playing with those images. But I don't know. It's just like, I guess, curiosity. I know it sounds pretty lame to say that, but... I guess I picked out those examples because when I look at them, I do think that there seems like there is a theme. Something about looking for the point between the inside and the outside of art or the place where weird popular stuff and weird art stuff intersect. I don't spend that much time thinking about art, art per se. And so a lot of my ideas come from without the world of art. And so I think there's to me a lot of value in the everyday or value in pop culture on an emotional and aesthetic level that is pretty valuable to the experiences of a lot of people that haven't gone through the uh, hamster wheel of art education. So, uh, new friends, Ollie? <laughs> Those aren't my friends. Those are the cool popes, the biggest bullies in town. Cool popes? Yeah. They used to be three dweebs everybody would dunk on, but then one day they showed up in sunglasses and hoagie-shaped hats, and suddenly everyone was tripping over themselves to be friends with them. Now they're the ones doing the dunking. Well, Ollie, it sounds like the cool popes have tapped into the age-old wisdom of visually aligning oneself with potent symbols of power in order to strengthen one's own self-perpetuated myth such that they're now, in fact, cool popes. Potent symbols? Like a brand? I got a brand, the Ollie brand. That was a clip from your new video at the Fabric Workshop and Museum. It's called His History of Art, and in a way it makes a return to the kind of video you were doing with Art Thoughts, riffing on art history and art education, but it's in a totally new persona. So tell us, what's on your mind with His History of Art? The show at the Fabric Workshop is volume one of this series, and I guess it's a sitcom starring myself as this character, Jay and his roommate, Ollie, who is a puppet, a rabbit. Jay is a art collector. He's a purveyor of fine things. And Ollie is just kind of like a cool, cool dude tapped into the energy of today's world. The premise is essentially Jay is trying to teach Ollie the value of art history and how it could have impact on Ollie's personal life. And that's like basically the gist of it without giving away too much. But initially, this history was a project I was going to follow up uh, Art Thoughts back in like 2013. I was 
having a conversation with PBS Digital on doing a series of videos that covered a uh, larger gamut of art history, other than like the critical theory that we have post-World War II, post-70s, like critical theory stuff that like kind of like is the hallmark of art thoughts. As I said, I started focusing more on my studio then. And so that project idea got shelved. And when I met with Karen Patterson, at the time she was the curator at the Fabric Workshop, and I was discussing some ideas. I like to like come up with something a long time ago and then store it in a lunchbox and then pull it back out. There was the same case for the Nancy stuff and the same case for his history. And so I presented the initial idea was going to be pretty similar to Hennessy in some respects, where it was going to be like a talking head exposition dump on these works of art history. This is also during the pandemic and that concept, I guess, just it wasn't inspiring at all for me. I don't know. I just couldn't bring myself to make that kind of work again. And so, but I still wanted to kind of deal with certain themes or aspects of history, but in essentially, I guess, a more playful manner. And so the kind of sitcom format was born in the process of working on this show throughout the pandemic. But ultimately, it's very playful with some dabbling of history and art intermixed. Working with the Fabric Workshop, you can probably do things that you couldn't do as an art student playing around with the YouTube format. There's this really involved gallery of props from the show that ranges from what appears to be a life-sized Venus of Willendorf mascot costume to puppet snowballs, which are referencing a very famous conceptual art performance by the artist David Hammonds, where he tried to sell snowballs as a street vendor. Yeah, yeah. So just tell us about some of the objects you've hashed for this show. I know there's a part of it where people get to interact with them. Basically, the set is Jay's living room, but, you know, I wanted the set to kind of look like the lair of a Batman villain. And so all these objects are kind of these things that the character Jay has collected. And so the snowballs, David Hammond's a reference, their characters, there's this uh, dolly rug, which is actually more of a reference to Wesley Snipes' Brown's Watch and New Jack City. They're all pointing toward these iconic works within art history, but also that these are things that this character, Jay, has had the power to collect over time. And so the viewers, after they watch all the uh, videos, the set will be right there. They see the set, they can see where it's filmed, and also they can kind of see the guts of how the puppeting worked, because you know you can see behind the set as well, to a certain degree. Jason, you know, you say you're not really embedded in the art conversation, but some of these are really heady references. Yeah, I guess so. I guess, you know, I've been working on this show, so my head is in that. But like outside of that, you know, I'm not like, I don't know, I'm not really like thinking about this stuff, I guess. You know, like I'm in like work mode right now. So I guess that is why I had to kind of think about the world building of the set and the set dressing and how that lends itself to the character. But, you know, okay, you know, I guess I am, you know, I'm there, you know. How much of a project like his history of art is making fun of art education? And how much of it is more like a different way to do art education, to incorporate some humor and some of the internet savvy way of thinking where different kinds of culture collide in surreal ways to make art feel more accessible and more palatable? I think it's more of a different way. I don't necessarily consider it making fun of art education because I think it's very 
it's very valuable to get kind of a, a straightforward arts education. But I think that there are a lot of people that haven't had the privilege or access to art history. And I think this is just another way of introducing people to ideas around art history. I think one of my most profound or valuable educational experiences was taking like art history classes with Gwendolyn Dubois-Shaw at UPenn. You know, as I was writing, actually, the Art Thoughts scripts, you know, like her art history classes were really like great intellectual food for the writing process. But I do think there is plenty of room for other avenues of education. As the great rapper Karis One coined the phrase edutainment, there's great value to be had in dispersing information through forms that people do not expect to be educated by. I'm interested in the contrast between this project and Art Thoughts. It feels like the PBS, Mr. Rogers, Sister Wendy art education thing that you're doing here has to be meant as a deliberate contrast to the Def Jam YouTuber persona from before, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I wanted to be on video. You know, this is like 10 years after Art Thoughts. I'm older and heavier and I got more hair and I wanted to be kind of old and more ragged. There's this cool perception around Hennessy and I'm like, that's great, but I don't want to really be that. So I'm kind of like in ill-cut suits and there's definitely a visual contrast to the Hennessy character and just the demeanor. Like the J character is essentially a very straightforward character, a little bit arrogant, but you know, he's a far cry from Hennessy. So my character is like kind of there for the purpose of getting information to the audience, you know. It's really fun to play a boring character, you know, it's great. I don't have to be witty. Everyone else can do the heavy lifting. What's the narrative arc of this video? What can people expect? In this first volume, the themes that are kind of uh, dealt with are appetite, power, and the idea of genius. Those three themes are kind of related back to uh, exploits within Ali the rabbit's life. That's uh, all I'm willing to say. Finally, just reflecting on this insider-outsider theme, I was thinking that as an artist, you really represent someone who's found their own path, starting out in graffiti and music and then on the internet, but also working with galleries and museums, but doing it in your own way. And I think that one of the reasons that Art Thoughts has stuck around longer than the average meme, besides the fact that it's actually funny, is that people really identify with this kind of knowing but also skeptical and incredulous perspective on the art world. I mean, if you're in art school right now, it's got to be a really strange time when some of the old models about what success looks like or how you find it have broken down. So I guess I just wonder if you have any thoughts or advice for people looking to find their own kind of path through the chaos. Uh, advice for other artists? Um, I don't know. I mean, stick with it. You know, I, th I feel like to really commit to a life of art making requires a great deal of sacrifice. You're going to sacrifice a lot of stability and comfort 
to really pursue art. And, you know, of course, obviously, you know, this is the art angle and it's, you know, centers around figures in the art world who have success or notoriety, but that's quite rare. And I think that if you really want to pursue and stick with a life of making art, you know, you're going to have to be willing to sacrifice a lot. But that's kind of dismal. That's a dismal way to kind of end it. It's just that don't give up. It's not going to be easy. The tumbles will take are a part of it, and they'll just make you a better, stronger, and more insightful uh, artist if you are willing to learn from your mistakes and adapt and evolve. So that's what I kind of mean by sacrifice is that the rough patches are a part of the process. If worse comes to worse, you can always get a pint of white rice separately from the general so sauce, and then you can keep the general so sauce. Um, it should cost you, you know, two, three dollars, and you can use that on other meals, you know, other packets of pre-cooked meals you have in your freezer. That's the greatest advice I can give. I think that's as good a place to end it as any. Thanks so much, Jason, for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sona Manoli, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.